And years later, Luther would write this in, in defending himself. He said, I know very well that in Romans 3, the word alone is not in the Greek or Latin text. But whenever we place two things in opposition and want to make clear that we acknowledge or accept the one and reject the other, in plain language, we use the word only. Now, many Roman Catholic apologists have howled at this and have made fun of Luther and have made fun of Protestants saying, look at your, your guy Luther, he inserted words into the sacred text. The one thing that they won't tell you is that Thomas Aquinas, their greatest theologian, actually agreed with Luther. So the fact that it says faith alone does actually carry the intent that Paul was trying to communicate in Romans 3.28. Now, our purpose today is not to delve into uh, theories of translation and whether Luther was right or wrong to do this way back in 1522. This is only to point out that this passage carries with it all kinds of important historical and theological meaning to it. So that and much more today, including we're going to be looking at James chapter 2 and reconciling how Paul and James see this issue of faith and works. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 27 to 31 in particular this morning, but I want you to go all the way back up to verse 19. And we're going to read from 19 down to 31, because this really is such an important section of Scripture that we need to know well. Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of God this morning. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful. That's a lot there. And you can go back on the website and you can look at the past few messages as we've been breaking that down. But here's what we need to know. These verses are absolutely critical to our understanding of the gospel. In particular, how we understand how a person like you or like me is justified before God. How we are accepted in our sinful condition by a holy God. So what does justification refer to? By the way, you see that if you look at your text, you see it in verse 20. You see it in verse 24. And you see it again in verse 26. What does justification refer to? Again, it's how we are accepted by God in spite of the debt that we owe for sin. It's an act of God where he declares that you are righteous in his sight. Now just stop and think about that for a second. That a holy God would declare you righteous in his sight. Remember, we're not made righteous in justification in any practical sense. It's not like we're, we're a filthy sinner and then in an instant we're suddenly absolutely pure. In a practical sense, we're not made righteous. That process is called what? Sanctification. And that takes takes time. In fact, it takes a lifetime to be sanctified, and even then we won't get to the end until we're glorified, right? Justification happens in a single moment where God applies 
the righteousness of Christ to your account. Think about that. To your account and then declares you to be free from the penalty of sin. So what these verses do that we just read is tell us the basis or the ground for our acceptance with God. The basis for our justification. And very quickly, let me give you five ways that that's true. Here we go. Number one, justification is accomplished apart from our obedience to the law. Look at verse 20 again. By the works of the law, how much flesh will be justified? No flesh will be justified by works of the law. So we can't obey our way to God. right? We can't do enough good things to earn this declaration of righteousness from him. Justification happens apart from our works of obedience. That's number one. Number two is this. Justification comes to us through self-renunciation. Look at verse 22. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this is the opposite of relying upon your own goodness. The opposite of relying upon some type of merit or virtue within you. Faith requires us to renounce trusting in ourselves and placing our trust in another. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three... Justification is a gift that comes by God's grace. Look at verse 24. Being justified is a gift by His grace. Once again, justification isn't something that you can earn like it's a wage, like you go to work on, you know, tomorrow and you do a certain amount of work and therefore your boss owes you something. You don't earn it as a wage. It's given to you freely as a gift. And if you claim to work for it or if you claim that you deserve it, then you actually nullify grace and you invalidate the gift. Number four. Justification is grounded in something that not you did, but what Christ did. Look at verses 24 and 25. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be bought back, to be purchased. Your life was was purchased. Jesus paid an actual penalty, a ransom for your sin. What is propitiation? It's the act of satisfying God's wrath. Something that only God can do. None of us here has the power to satisfy God's wrath. Only God could do that for himself. So justification doesn't come from anywhere within you. It comes from something beautiful outside of you, the work of Christ on the cross. You following with me? Lastly, very simply, God is the one who justifies. Look at verse 26. That he would be both just and the justifier. Folks, you don't justify yourself. That's way above your pay grade. Right? God is the one who justifies. In fact, you don't contribute to your justification in any way. It's his work alone. So in those five ways, Paul shows us that the basis of our salvation is not anything within us. It's all from the outside of us. It's not anything that we do. It's something that God does entirely. Now, that's going to be important to understand as we now get into verse 27 Because Paul's going to ask this really important, and it's a rhetorical question. This this is what Paul does. He asks questions. We've already seen this, right? He asks questions, and he answers them. Here's the question. Where then is boasting? It's excluded, he says. Duh. I mean, that really is a dumb... It's so rhetorical. It's like nobody would, after reading those verses, would ever conclude that we can boast before God, unless you're just not paying attention. It's a rhetorical question. Where is boasting? It's excluded. Now, what what does boasting mean? Do I need to define that? Really quickly, this is what it means. To talk with excessive pride about your achievements. That definition makes makes what Paul's just said in verse 27, the understatement of all time. Of course you can't boast. 
Of course you can. How can you boast in your salvation if having read these things before it, you realize you don't have any part in it? Who can boast in something that they had actually no part in? Let's review again. We're saved apart from our works, right? We're saved apart from anything good in us. We're saved as a free gift by grace. We're saved outside of ourselves by Christ's work on the cross. And God is the one who saves, not us. Think about that. How on earth could anybody boast? Where is there room for pride? And this is a question I often ask my Christian brothers and sisters. When we, when we tend to get prideful, right, whether it's in social media or it's in our discussions with people, where is there room for pride in a Christian? There's no room for it because none of it came from us, saved by God's grace alone, right? There's no room for pride, no room for arrogance, no room for boasting in any way. Here's the thing, you guys. Saving faith always comes with humility. I mean, if you, if you see anything in the scriptures that talks about saving faith, you're going to see humility somewhere around it. I'll give you some examples. First from the prophets. Micah says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Isaiah says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Job says, The humble person God will save. Solomon wrote, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And that's not just an Old Testament thing, right? Humility is part and parcel of the Christian life. The Lord himself said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. James says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter reminds us, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Paul is saying here in Romans 3 that the way that God saves us, the way that he justifies us ought to leave us broken and humble and contrite and incredibly grateful and certainly not boastful. Now, is there anything we can boast in? Right, we can boast in the Lord, right? Listen to the beauty of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Right? If you, if you consider yourself wise... Don't boast in it. It came from the Lord, didn't it? And let not the mighty man boast of his might. If you're a big, strong guy, or you have power in this world, don't boast in it. It came from God. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. If God has seen fit to bless you financially, don't boast in it. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice, and righteousness on the earth. Paul says simply in 2 Corinthians 10, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we can have excessive pride in something. We can have excessive pride in who God is. We can have excessive pride in what he has done for us. In fact, Grant would tell you that every Sunday when we come together and we stand up and we sing his praises, guess what we're doing? We're boasting in the Lord. We're shouting to the world. We're singing to him, but we're also shouting to the world and to one another, look how good our God is. Look how majestic he is. We're able to boast in him. So, let's keep reading now as we get to verse 27. Let's keep reading. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Paul asks. Of works? Rhetorical question, right? He's going to answer it. No, but by a law of what? Of faith. And then comes Luther's famous verse, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul comes back. He's already said this in verse 20, hasn't he? 
Verse 20 said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And now here in verse 28, he says it again. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And now for a historian or somebody that loves the text, that ought to just raise a red flag. You say, why is Paul taking the time to repeat himself here? Is there something so important about this subject that it requires being repeated? Or is there something about this church that he's writing to that he's concerned about, that he has to stress and really emphasize this particular principle? And I think the answer is yes. So let's take a look at this. A couple things we need to understand. And this is important for us for a couple reasons. First of all, for our own assurance of salvation, but also for how we share the gospel. Hear me now. Understanding how God justifies a sinner is essential knowledge. Would you agree? I mean, of all the things that you can learn on this earth, I mean, if you think about eternity, how long it really is, of all the things that you could spend time learning on earth, maybe this is central. How this holy God, God Almighty, the creator of all things, can justify a sinner. I mean, if you really step back, doesn't that seem like the the most central question of all of life? It does to me. So when you share your faith with somebody, and they're lost, and you want to get through to them with the gospel, there's so many things you can talk about, right? So many rabbit trails. Have you ever been talking to somebody who's, who's uh, an unbeliever, and they want to take you down these weird rabbit trails, and they have these, these strange questions? Whenever I talk to an unbeliever, it might be a, a Roman Catholic friend, or somebody who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, or maybe one of the LDS, you know, the groups of elders that come and knock at your door, or some agnostic uh, or atheist on Facebook who's confused about Christian doctrine, this is the question that I always want to keep the conversation focused on. How can a sinner be justified by God? Because that is the key question. Now, oftentimes when you're talking to a lost person who doesn't want to hear it, they'll try to change the subject, won't they? They'll try to take you off on some rabbit trail and some weird you know, thing where they got some question about what Christians do or believe or whatever. Bring them back to this particular topic. How is it that you can be justified before a holy God? How is it that this debt that you owe for sin can be paid? That is the key question. Confusion on this matter is spiritually deadly, isn't it? If you're confused about how you can be justified before God, you are in spiritual peril. That's why this matters. And you're going to find that most people are confused about it. LDS, Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholics, agnostics. For some reason, they have it all stuck in their heads. And and I know why, because the enemy's blinded them. They have it stuck in their heads that works have to contribute to their salvation. In some form or some amount, they've got to do a certain number of good things to please God. That seems to be the way that we're wired. And as we've seen multiple times in the book of Romans already, the man who thinks that he's going to get to the day of judgment and stand on his own merit is in big trouble. Isn't that true? Even the person who gets to the day of judgment and says, well, I'm trusting in Christ plus a few of my own good works to seal the deal, that person is also going to fall short on the day of judgment. So it's a very common but very spiritually deadly mistake that has eternal consequences. Paul knows this. As he's writing to this Roman church in the first century, he's concerned that his audience understands this because it has big, big consequences. He's concerned for both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Remember, the very beginning of the series, we talked about how the Roman church was probably filled with both Gentile believers and believers from a Jewish background, and he's concerned for both of these groups. I want you to stop and think about this for a second. If you were a Jewish believer, 
Okay, a Jewish Christian, a, a person who was raised in Judaism, but they came to trust in Yeshua as Messiah. Think about some of the struggles that they would have gone through when they heard Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. They've been reared in a system that says the exact opposite, right? Think about it. They've been reared in a system that tells them that salvation is connected to their ethnic identity and their obedience to God's law. And now Paul's saying, no, it's the exact opposite. Think about how much they might be struggling and how Paul would be concerned for them. What about family? How hard would it be for a a Jewish believer in the first century to turn his back on Judaism? To essentially walk away from his traditions and his family and trust in Christ. Think about the pressure they might have been under to renounce Christ and come back to Judaism for the sake of family. How many of you guys know Jewish believers today who still have that same tension and pressure in their own families? Because in many ways, a Jewish family will say, you've turned your back on us, and they will disown them. It must have been even worse in the first century. So... Paul's no doubt concerned for these young Jewish Christians. He wants them to be deeply grounded in the doctrine of justification. Now, what about Gentiles? What about Gentile Christians? Is there a concern for them? Absolutely, only it's a very different concern. The Gentiles, bless their heart, didn't know much about anything, right? They come from a Greco-Roman background. They They don't have any of the baggage of understanding the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament symbols or prophecy, The ideas that were floating around the Greco-Roman world about salvation were were crazy. And so for the Gentile Christians, Paul's concerned about actually getting them into the Old Testament. Getting them some background, some roots that they can really grasp onto. He's going to go, in fact, in the next chapter in Romans 4, he's going to appeal to the Old Testament to try to prove his doctrine of justification. And that's exactly what he wants to do with the Gentile Christians in Rome. So I say all that. To help you guys always remember, when you're reading a letter within context, know that there's an audience out there, a specific audience, that Paul or James or Peter or John, that they're writing to that has specific needs. And and you can see, if you begin to really understand the context of it, you can see the care that these biblical authors had for their audiences. So both of those groups in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles, need to understand this essential teaching. And I think, in part, that's why Paul repeats himself. Multiple times in this section. This is essential knowledge. It is for you as well. Both for your assurance of salvation and as you're sharing the gospel with lost people to always bring them back to this subject matter. Make sense? Good. So let's talk about the idea of faith then. Paul says a man is justified by faith or as Luther translated it, by faith alone. What exactly does that mean? Sometimes we take simple things like that and we we act like we all understand what that means. What does it mean to have faith alone? This is the second thing we need to know about justification. Number one is the basis for it. The basis for justification. And we figured it out. It's all outside of us. It's in the the finished work of Christ on the cross. The other thing we need to understand is how you and I enter into this justified state. Let me say it again. We have to understand how we enter into this justified state. In other words, first the basis for salvation. Second, the means of salvation. Or as God might put it, first what I do to save you, second what you do to receive the gift that I've given you. Does that make sense? Both sides of that are very, very important. So from our end, what does it mean to have faith? Well, the good news is the Bible gives us a definition, right? Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us a good definition of what faith is. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. So if we were going to put that in simple terms, the biblical definition of faith is trusting in something you cannot explicitly prove. Let me say that again. Trusting in something that you cannot explicitly prove. Now, as simple as that sounds, people are really confused about this idea of faith. If we went out into Santa Clarita today at the mall and we grabbed 10 people and said, give me some details about what faith is, we would get 10 different answers. People are really confused about this. And the, the primary reason for that is they don't understand that there are two distinct aspects to faith. Let me put them up here. Boom. There we go. The first is intellectual assent, and the second is trust. These are two aspects of saving faith. Intellectual assent is believing something to be true in your mind. Trust is relying on the fact that what you believe to be true in your mind actually is true and acting on it. Okay, the first one is in the mind. I believe that's true. The second one is what I believe is true, I believe is actually true, and therefore I'm ready to act upon it. Does that make sense? And so the classic example is the chair. I see a chair, and I say it's a rational thought to believe that that chair can support me. I believe in that chair. All 200 and something pounds of me. That that chair is going to hold up. So what is trust? Sitting down. Sitting on the chair. I'm, I'm putting feet to it, right? I believe that, but now I'm actually living based on what I believe. You guys all look, either you're processing or you look confused. You with me? Okay, so when you or I receive God's gift of salvation by faith, it means a couple things. First of all, that we come to intellectually believe in God's promises. And all that goes with that, we believe in the truth of his word. We believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that Christ is the Son of God, fully man and fully God, right? We believe that he died on that cross to pay the ransom for our sins. We believe that he was raised from the dead. We believe all of these doctrines, which are essential to the Christian faith, but there's more to it than that, right? Does that intellectual stuff save you? No, the devil believes those things, right? He believes those things, so that doesn't save you. How do we move beyond intellectual assent to an act of trust? We put feet to it. We sit down on the chair. Okay? We live out our faith. In a practical sense, we begin to think and act in a way that is consistent with what we believe. An increasing measure as time goes by. Here's how Paul puts it to the Philippian church. He says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation as God works in you according to his good pleasure and will. Both are true. We work out our salvation as God works within us, but we put feet to it. Make sense? One's intellectual assent, folks, that will not save you on the day of judgment. If you're trusting in just a bunch of ideas, you're going to fall short. If you haven't put feet to it, if you haven't trusted and acted upon what you believe in your mind, you're going to fall short on the day of judgment. So saving faith will always show up in both intellectual assent and living in a certain way. But here's the key. Faith is a practical way of life. will not be focused on self. It will be focused on Christ. True saving faith will not be focused on what you're doing, but what God is doing. Key principle, God doesn't justify us because we have faith. Let me say that again. God doesn't justify us because we have faith. God justifies us because of what he has done for us in Christ. 
Faith is simply the instrument by which we embrace what he's done for us. Now you may say that's a, you know, there's no difference in that. There is. There's an important distinction. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. Faith is the instrument by which we appropriate that. So faith doesn't rely on self. Faith relies on God. Faith doesn't try and find strength and power from within us. Faith looks to another, to the Spirit of God to empower us. Faith doesn't strive to stand before God and say, look how righteous I am. Faith says, no, my righteousness are dirty rags, and I trust alone in Christ's righteousness. So although true saving faith is practically lived out, it's always going to seek to exalt Christ and not self. Not always perfectly, by the way. Unless you guys are getting scared, like, oh, I don't do that all the time. Not perfectly, but that's going to be the trajectory of a true believer's life. That in, in, in graduating amounts, we are going to die to self more and live to exalt Christ more. Those two things happen simultaneously. Now, as I say that, there's an objection that often gets raised, and this might get raised by a Roman Catholic friend or by that LDS elder. It sounds like you have to do something to be saved, Jeff. It sounds to me like you have to do something. You have to believe, and then you have to live out your faith. So aren't you adding a work to the cross? Well, this is why being able to harmonize James 2 and Romans 3 is so important for the believer, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, let me point out this one very important thing. God has established salvation for us by his grace at both ends of salvation, at his end and at our end. It's all by his grace. So this is why it's not a work, because all of it happens by his grace. Here's what I mean. First of all, we've already seen this from his end. God doesn't justify us because of anything we've done. He does all the work. We contribute nothing to that. But it's not just God's end. It's our end as well. Most of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Some of the most famous uh, passages in all of Scripture. For by grace you've been saved, we get that, right? Through faith... And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. There's that boasting again. It all comes to us by grace. Our part in this, the faith part, that intellectual assent and that trust, even that comes from God. That's what it says, right? It's the gift of God. So even the one thing that we're required to bring to the table, at the end of the day, it comes from Him, freely, as an act of his grace. It's his gift to us. So salvation is by grace at both ends. We don't do anything to earn God's acceptance of us. And the one thing that he says we need to, quote, do, he does it for us. Right? I mean, right? Amen? Because if it was up to us, we wouldn't do it. That's, that, that's why we fall on our face before the Lord. Because if it was up to us, we would fail. We would fall short. We would not ever be saved. But he's done the work by grace in his end and on our end. So, let's deal with old James. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn over to James 2. James 2. We're going to see... That while Paul insists that justification is apart from works, James says that a person is justified by his works. Audible gasp in the audience. What? This appears to be a contradiction. You're rocking my faith, Jeff. No, it does. On the surface, it appears to be a contradiction. And it has befuddled Christians for centuries, including Luther. 
who really struggled with this one. In fact, in, in his preface to the first edition of his German New Testament translation, Luther famously called James an epistle of straw. See, it was always being thrown at him. James, too, is always being thrown at him by Roman Catholic apologists. He's called an epistle of straw. Why, he said? Because it has no evangelical character about it. Now, Luther was a flawed man, was he not? In many ways. We'll get to that when October rolls around. But what a lot of Roman Catholics fail to mention to you is in subsequent editions of his translation, he took those negative comments out. So he grew through this. He matured through it. Praise the Lord, right? Luther needed to grow in this, and he came to embrace the book of James, and even in some of his later writings, appeared to be able to harmonize Paul and James adequately. So we praise God for growth, right? So there's the key verse in question, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do we reconcile Paul and James? I'm going to give you a couple of ways. The answer is always found, and you guys know my favorite word, is in context. Context matters. Context is where you're... The purpose behind these two authors, the book of Romans and the book of James, are very different. And that's really important to understand. The purpose behind Paul's writing is, in a general sense, to talk about this doctrinal idea of how sinners are justified before God. What's the purpose behind James's comments in James 2? He's talking about a particular hypocrisy that had shown up in the church. So one's a very general teaching about how sinners are saved. The other is, I'm dealing with this very specific issue that's happening in the church now. Keep that in mind, because that's going to matter. So, let's, look at, uh, let's go up to verse 14 of James chapter 2, and let's read all the way through 24. So James 2.14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Good question, right? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is what? It's dead, being by itself. Okay? So you get a sense. James is talking about something that he's seeing in the church. Dead faith. People that claim one thing but live a different way. Let's keep going. Verse 18. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And every Roman Catholic apologist did this. Yes! They get so excited about this passage. Without taking into context the rest of the New Testament, of course. So, what's the situation happening in the church James says, look, there's people out there who claim to believe, they claim to have a saving faith, but their lives don't line up with this particular profession of faith. It's an issue of hypocrisy. That never happens in the church, right? People say one thing but do a different thing. And so James is answering this key question, what demonstrates that a person has faith? What is it that shows that a person has saving faith? 
And his observation is clear. He says, true faith produces good works. Dead faith does not produce good works. Very simple, right? So James is not talking about how a man is saved. That is not his intent, as Paul is talking about in Romans 3. James is talking about how you discern whether a professing Christian is a real Christian or not. Folks, those are completely different subject matters. And we have to take that into consideration as we interpret. See, a key rule in interpreting Scripture is you always want to make sure you're not forcing a biblical author to say more than the context of his writing demands. Don't stretch his meaning. Don't say, well, because he said this in this context, I'm going to stretch that all the way over to hear it. What we end up doing is we call this eisegeting. We're adding meaning into the text that isn't there. So you have to understand the context. He's writing about a particular issue. That's number one. The second thing to know, and language scholars will point this out all day long, Paul and James are using some of the same terms, terms like saved and justified, but they're using them in completely different ways. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the moment in time and space when a person is declared righteous by God. When James uses those same terms, he's talking about them in the ultimate sense. He's talking about them on the day of judgment, when final salvation, final justification takes place. So they're using them in different ways, and that's really key to understand as well. But the most important thing to understand, and this is really where the Roman Catholic apologist really struggles with a comeback. The biggest clue that we have here that harmonizes these is found in verses 21 to 23. What is the Old Testament example that James uses to make his point? Click. There we go. Good. The story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, what's interesting about that is guess where Paul is going to go at the beginning of chapter 4 to prove justification by faith alone? To that very same story. Both James and Paul believe the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac makes their point. So we're going to see that next Sunday, so make sure you come back for that. Both authors appeal to it. Now, notice how James quotes from Genesis 15.6 in his text. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then he says what? In verse 21, that therefore Abraham was justified when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Okay? But here's the important clue that you need to understand. When did God say to Abraham that he was justified by faith? When did God declare this? In Genesis 15. When did Abraham offer up Isaac? In Genesis 22. Which came first? Yeah, he was declared righteous in Genesis 15. Why? Because he believed God. In Genesis 22, years later, after that declaration, is when he offered up his son on the altar. Do you see it? The timing is incredibly important. Abraham had already been declared righteous in God's sight long before he took his son up onto Mount Moriah. That's important stuff. It wasn't his obedience on Mount Moriah that caused him to be justified. That came simply because of his faith in Yahweh. He believed in God's promises. So in offering up Isaac many years later, what was happening? Abraham was demonstrating his saving faith by obeying the Lord. And therefore, in the words of James, Abraham's faith was then made complete. It was confirmed by his obedience. Now, is there somewhere else? By the way, did that make sense? You guys, that's important to understand. 
Now, is there somewhere else we can go in the New Testament to get the same principle? Let's go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Who knows what the next verse says? Ephesians 2.10. It's very important. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? What? Did Paul just say, for good works? Wait, so wait, are you telling me that Paul believes in good works too? Wacky. We were saved for this purpose, you guys, for good works. Just as James was talking about. We were saved saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved only by grace through faith, which, and again, the faith is a gift from God in the first place. And then in verse 10, he says, here's why you were saved, to do good works in his name. Works that glorify God. Works that are preordained by God, that you would walk in them. Works that he will empower you to accomplish according to his sovereign hand. Faith and works working together. It's our walking faithfully in these works that will one day, on the day of judgment, provide evidence that we've been saved all along. That's an important point. Do you remember what Paul wrote back in Romans 2 and you all had this puzzled look on your face? He said, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. It's the doers of the law that will be justified. And you all went, what? What do you mean? We're, we're justified by doing? Guys, we're declared righteous in time and space by a free act of God. But when we get to the day of judgment, it's the, it's the works that God has done in and through us that provide evidence that we've been saved ever since that moment. It'll be the doers of the law, the ones empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the works that God had prepared in advance for us, the doers of the law that will be justified. Do you see how they work together? We've got to be able to harmonize Paul and James or else we're going to be confused. We're justified for obedience, not by obedience. If you want to write something down, that's a good one to write down. We're justified for obedience, not by obedience, and that makes all the difference in the world. You guys worn out yet? It's heavy stuff, right? But this is the core of our faith, you guys, how we are justified as sinners before a holy God. This is, this is previous generations would say this is just basic Christianity. In the church today, we go, wow, this is really deep. And I don't mean that as an attack upon our, our congregation. I know you guys love doctrine. You love to be taught these things. But there's a lot of our brothers and sisters out there that don't understand this stuff, and it's important. All right, we've got to finish the text. We don't have a lot more to talk about, but one more example of how Paul harmonizes with James comes from verse 31 in our text. So go back to Romans 3. Romans 3. Go back to verse 29. Because we've only gotten through 28, right? Verse 29, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. What is Paul saying here? Very simple. If there's only one God, then there's only one judge. And if there's only one judge, there's only one gospel. If there's only one gospel, there's only one way a person can be justified before God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, one God, one judge, one gospel, one way of being justified. There are not two separate tracks. Well, Jews line up over here, Gentiles over here, and there's two different standards. We're all justified in the same way by, by faith. 
Make sense? So, the big question, and this will end here in chapter, uh, with verse 31, the big question that comes out of that then is, so does that mean that the law has been done away with? Does that mean the law has been, been, been nullified, canceled out? Again, another rhetorical question from Paul. He says in verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? This had to be one of the primary objections that Paul was dealing with whenever he spoke to a Jew. Come on, Paul, when you talk about this justification by faith alone, doesn't that mean that you're canceling out all of God's commandments? Are you really, are you blowing up the Ten Commandments, seriously? Getting rid of the Mosaic Law, all of the halakha, the walking, are you getting rid of all, it doesn't matter anymore? Really, Paul? You can almost hear that, right? Are you suggesting that the people of God can now go out and live as however they please and live in sin so that grace will abound? Are you suggesting that obedience doesn't matter, that holiness doesn't matter to God? What's Paul's response? May it never be. May it never be, he would have yelled. Absolutely not is what that means. Right? By no means. And then he makes this bold statement. On the contrary, you Jewish objector, we Christians establish the law. We uphold the law by justification. By this doctrine of justification, we actually uphold the law. That's what Paul's claiming here. My doctrine of justification by faith alone actually upholds the law of Moses. And you say, well, how is that possible? Two ways. Number one, the law demands what for sin? Death and the shedding of blood. Has that been satisfied? Amen. Yeah, the law's been established. It's been upheld by the death of Christ. Payment was rendered. Blood was shed. A death took place. We uphold the law because Christ paid the penalty on the, on the cross. Secondly, we uphold the law because justification by faith, when it's rightly understood, does lead to a practical life of obeying God's moral law. We've just seen this in James 2. Walking in the good works that he's prepared for us, right? Ephesians 2. The Spirit producing Spiritual fruit within us, Galatians 5. Faith working with our works, James 2. God completing the work that he's begun in us, Philippians 1. Yeah, salvation by faith alone leads to what? A gradual process of sanctification. A striving to fulfill the moral law of God. We uphold the law through my justification doctrine, Paul says. Justification by faith will never lead a believer to to try to negate the law or to try to Try to say it doesn't matter anymore. Or to say it should be ignored. Or to say I hate the law. It'll never lead there. In fact, if our faith is true, it will lead us to declare as the psalmist did, how I love your law, O Lord. How I love your law. Because it comes from him. So, let me close with a great quote from a really great man of faith. And then we'll be out of here. Because I have worn you guys out. This is John Bunyan. John Bunyan, 17th century Puritan preacher. Great writer, brilliant guy. He was especially drawn to Romans 3.24. How many times already in this series have we seen great men in church history who were deeply impacted by the text of Romans? Here's another one. John Bunyan wrote this. Writing from God's perspective, here's what he said. Sinner, you think that because of your sins and your infirmities that I cannot save your soul, but behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, not upon you. And I will deal with you as I am pleased with him. Praise the Lord. Man, aren't you glad that he looks at his son and not you? 
Praise the Lord. What a beautiful truth. Here's the thing, guys. Every revival in the church that's happened in the last five years has happened because men and women, like us, have come to grips with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Come to grips with it, accepted it, believed it, trusted it, lived it out. Justification by faith alone. Folks who come to realize, man, I can't work my way to God's acceptance. I can't earn this righteousness that I need so badly. Folks who have come to realize that salvation is by God's grace at both ends, at His end and at our end, that even this little penance of faith that I've worked up within me, even that came from Him. Praise His name. Folks who have come to realize that the Christian life is about dying to self and exalting Christ more and more. Folks, those are the, the truths that come out of Romans 3 that have changed men and women, that have transformed their lives, and they have transformed entire churches as well. May we shake off any rust or apathy that we have about the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what we've just read. May we see the gospel afresh and be broken and humbled by it, by the fact that God has chosen us, chosen us to be justified in his sight, chosen us that he would apply the righteousness of his son to our accounts. Let's bow our heads.